and welcome to The New Conspiracist, the show that's the best podcast since sliced bread. I'm Jolyon Rubenstein, and beside me is the man they call the conspiracy hunter, because he hunts down conspiracy theories just for you, my friends. I talk, of course, about James Ball. How are you, mate? I'm not too bad. That sort of makes you sound like a shit Boba Fett, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? I'll, I'll take that. Can you I just say what? shit series? <laughs> shit series. If you're going to do Boba Fett, why do you suddenly cut to the Mandalorian halfway through? What the fuck's that about? Yeah, I mean, you you cross your IP streams, don't you? You do, you cross your IP streams. <laughs> and on that, today we're discussing... No, we're not. We're not fucking discussing Boba Fett. Jesus Christ. James, what are we doing this week? Well, this week we are joined by writer, economist and journalist Duncan Weldon. Duncan has worked for such illustrious establishments as The Economist, where he was British economics correspondent, the BBC, where he was the economics correspondent for Newsnight, (laughs) (laughs) and the Bank of England, where he began his career. He's made programmes for BBC Radio 4, and he has a book entitled 200 Years of Muddling Through, The Surprising Story of Britain's Economy from Boom to Bust and back again. That, that literally could not be a more relevant title for today, <laughs> could it? Uh, it and, could not. And what are we discussing this week with Duncan? Today we are asking, nice topical one this week, it's a topical special, topical ladies and special. gentlemen. special. Did the government tank the economy to line the pockets of their hedge fund friends? I promise you it won't all be depressing. And remember, you can listen to ad-free episodes and access all of our bonus content. I mean, there's like 15 bonus episodes now by heading to www.newconspiracist.com. You can do it right now and send us your emails on hello at newconspiracist.com. We want to hear your take, your conspiracies, your thoughts, feelings, and everything's in between. And I will tell you that we're already banking ideas for new episodes from the quite huge amount of emails we've already got. I know we don't talk about them the whole time, but it is happening. Anyway... On with the show. I don't usually get to say that bit. <laughs> Duncan Weldon, welcome to The New Conspiracist. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me on. So, Duncan, before we get into this week's burning question, when was the first time that you sort of came into contact with conspiracy theory? Or what was your sort of entry level one? Yeah, I think I'm sort of just about the right age that I was maybe 12 or 13 when the X-Files started on television. Stretch. So, you know, you you watch all of it. You watch all of the X-Files and this is before we had the internet. What, you've done every app? I've done every app. Have you done every app? No, I haven't. Twice. Twice. Do you know what? I think I really missed out on like the best ones later on. Apparently the last series is an absolute banger. I think I only watched like a half half an episode of X Files. Well, oh, go, go away and crack that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, yeah. cool. See you next episode, yeah. everyone. Yeah. And that's James Ball. He's out now. That's it. For him. But like, if the X Files was my entry level yeah. drug to conspiracy <laughs> theories, you couldn't really get the hard stuff because we didn't have the internet. So you had to sort of rely on. Magazines did, did you just you'd have buy to like, on, like, you know, wait at the school gates and yeah, have someone yeah, yeah, yeah. you a conspiracy <laughs> kids, theory. Kids, you, you heard about Roswell. <laughs> <laughs> so, so all of that sort of 90s aliens, totally. US government men in black, I Majestic love that 12. Shit. Duncan, you know, as we've said in the yeah. intro, you're ex-Bank of England. So, you know, you got your introduction to aliens at 12, presumably like after your first month or so when you pass probation at the bank, you sort of wake up, you're in a hooded robe, you're in the basement from the Rothschild. I, I, I thought we cleared this. We can't talk about this on the podcast. What is Mark Carney like in an orgy? Is it exciting? Like, uh, does he wear a velvet robe or, you know, did he introduce some sort of new Canadian sort of special, you know, was Tom Cruise there? It is strange though, isn't it? Because the Bank of England, I mean, it is a fascinatingly bizarre organisation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the weirdest thing about the bank when I was there was we had a practice, this is wonderful, evacuation. Wow. Other, other organisations have an evacuation. <laughs> the bank has a massive vault underneath. Wow. So, so you know, if you come under attack, you like yeah, run we all, everyone goes and hides. Everyone goes and hides in the vault, all of the staff. And we did a couple of practices when I was there. Everyone goes down into awesome. the staff. I think there was some rumour 
that we could survive down there for eight or 12 weeks. In no. <laughs> and I often wondered, how long would the hierarchy have suggested, you know, dirty bomb attack on the city, all of the staff are the only survivors trapped in the vault with Kendall mint cake. And You've got like the water. Occupy movement 2.0 <laughs> surrounding the building. Zombie um, Occupy movement. That's incredible. So was it like done by seniority as to like how comfy your spot in the vault was? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the thing to do was to make friends of someone involved in security who could warn you when there was going to be an evacuation get yourself down there early because in the vault is the library which has comfortable chairs and if you're there when the evacuation the evacuation happens you're in a nice comfy chair you've got a book everyone else is sort of you know crowded in cheek to jowl great there's a similar thing for number 10 but without the eight weeks isn't there most of number 10's in the basement all the nice rooms are above and then everyone's in the basement with the crappiest canteen you've ever seen it's out in the 70s staff are lovely but if a certain alarm goes off you've got to look at the corridor and if it's marked you're in the bunker and if it's not you're not and so you've got to like (laughs) desperately try and get to a bunker corridor rather than like a crap one that is amazing so right we should probably jump into what we're supposed to talk about rather than you know revealing national security (laughs) secrets what are we supposed to be talking about the question today and it is a special topical episode and i really hope we have a nice jingle after that special topical episode Did the government purposefully tank the economy to line the pockets of their hedge fund donors? Now, Duncan, can you start by explaining to our dear listeners, it says here what hedge funds actually are. I think first we should, you know, go, you make all of your money from telling hedge funders inside information, don't you? <laughs> so <laughs> we should sort of tell the public, you're, you're on the side of the evil disaster capitalists here, aren't you? Well, well, I, I, I think um, you know, to answer what your a question, fucking intro as well. I bet you're really pleased you did this fucking podcast now, aren't you? James really just shat right all over your opportunity to sort of cut through to the listeners there. Jesus Christ! I like to give a nice soft underarm, you know, <laughs> just, easy over. Just start means go on, bro. Yeah, you know, what is a hedge fund? Is actually. Not a straightforward question. There's no accepted sort of widespread definition. But what we tend to mean is. A collective investment vehicle, so people put their money together into a fund, you know, pooled investment vehicle, we'd call it. It's hedge funders manage other people's money. Usually, They're not just gambling with their own. A giant piggy bank of everyone else's cash. Yeah, and if you're Some of it might be yours as well. Like, it might be your pension. It definitely fucking isn't, mate. (laughs) You're a comedian, you don't have a pension. I don't have any money, no, of course not. (laughs) And, like, you know, there's lots of different types of big asset managers out there that manage pools of money for people. Hedge funds are a bit different in that... They tend to only be open to what we call in inverted commas, sophisticated investors. So either very rich people or other institutions. You know, your your man on the Clapham omnibus can't just stick a tenner in a hedge fund. They <laughs> no, tend it's not to be, go very far, are no. they? I, I think the Clapham omnibus got cut. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, you know, there are these sort of for sophisticated investors. And whereas most, this is, this is the techie bit, the one bit of techie language I'm going to use, whereas most investors aim for what they call relative returns. Hedge funds go for absolute returns. What that means is most investors have a benchmark, say the FTSE 100 for UK stocks and shares. Yeah. And if the FTSE 100 is up 10% and they're up 12%, they say we've outperformed by 2%, well done us. And if the FTSE's down 10%, and they're only down five, well, their investors might not be happy, but they're saying, look at us. We, mm. we outperformed. We only lost 5%. <laughs> These people lost 10 Bonuses all yeah. around. Hedge funds generally aim for absolute returns. They try and make actual money regardless of what's happening in market conditions. And there's loads of different types of hedge funds, but what they have in common is they're aiming for absolute returns. They tend to be less regulated than other financial institutions, and they tend to be able to place bets which can pay off when things go up Mm. or when things go down. So just to help people in this, I don't think people have a good sense of what hedging is. No, Uh, I don't either. Actually, if people start to think it's from hedging your bets, it's from that kind of saying. My understanding of it, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I I only have an undergrad economist (laughs) economics degree, so, you know, I spent most of it learning critical race theory and wokeness, obviously. (laughs) It's basically almost like insurance for companies. So if you are selling cars, say, and you import loads of car parts from Europe, you might be really worried the pound's going to fall against the dollar. So you'll put on a bet in the opposite direction so that 
if suddenly everything's more expensive to import, your bet has got you some money to help you pay for it. And so hedging is like lowering your risk by, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, I believe Tottenham and Arsenal played recently. Oh, right? just fuck <laughs> off. I knew that was going to be a football metaphor, but don't don't bring up my weekend fucking pain, all right, to coat your shit metaphor. All right? No, I know what you're but, saying. I know what you're saying. But you are right. It's like the thing where people bet yeah, they do it all the lose. time so that you feel a bit less shit. But what hedge funds sort of do is turn that onto steroids. And so they're not trying to reduce their risk. They're sort of going whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah, so if you're, if you're left, yeah, if you're, if you're, Can I just if you're, ask, um, is whoop, 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 is that a very commonly used term in high finance? Yes. All the time. I thought all so. The time. I, I, I just uh, wanted to clarify that. Put it this way, if, you, if you're British Airways and you're running an airline, then the price of oil really matters to you because you've got to buy a hell of a lot of oil for your jet fuel. So you might think, okay, you know, we want to concentrate on running an airline. We don't want to be worrying about what the price of oil is. So we're going to hedge out the risk of oil going up by placing a load of bets on the price of oil. And if the price of oil shoots up, then our jet fuel costs more, but we're making money mm. on that trade. Now, that's a complete, you know, that's that's. By the way, just business. congratulations for the first ever mention of jet fuel on this podcast without, without, <laughs> without, <laughs> follow, without the following can't melt steel beams. I've just ruined it, but, you know, you got there. As a, as a layman here, when did hedging become something that was capable of doing within the markets? Has it been there for Forever, hundreds of really. years? Yeah, like, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years. It's become more and more sophisticated mm. now. And of course, the, but the thing is... I it, mean, insurance it, is a hedge, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. You know, yeah, but actually, for instance, like shorting, that is that practice. How old is that? Really old, really old. So you, you, you've definitely got people shorting stuff in the 16 and 1700s. That's amazing. Financial markets, so it's literally, because yeah. I do think some people don't really understand that yeah. at all. So British yeah. Airways or other airlines yeah. hedge to reduce their risk. Yeah, but then you or me might decide, actually, we want to get in that oil market as well. And we're, mm. we're not going to buy any oil. We don't run an airline. We don't need that much oil. So for us... Well, I run an airline, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like talking about it, but it's a big deal. But, you know, this market, which is really helpful for, you know, real world businesses that want to hedge out proper risks to their business, you can also use it to speculate in. You know, you can use that market to bet that oil is going to go higher or that oil is going to go lower. And is it fair to say that particularly from the 70s onwards, you know, Reaganomics, Thatcher, that that became more common? Yeah, there's yeah, an, uh, yeah, an awful lot more from the 70s onwards. And, you know, uh, the argument is this, this is helpful. It might sound silly, but the more speculators you've got, the more people you've got betting on rising or falling prices. Mm. Well, a couple of things happen. One, it makes financial markets more liquid because there's more people willing to trade. There's more business being done. That can be helpful for real companies. You're always going to find someone to take the other side of your, your bet. If you're British Airways wanting to hedge the price of oil, you need someone on the other side. Mm. Um, so, you know, that speculation helps. And also, you know, putting on my, my economist hat, the more players you've got in the market making these bets, the faster and more accurate the prices are. Mm. I mean, I don't think... You know, what, what does an economist hat look, I was going to say it's like? a very, very pretty hat. <laughs> very pointy. Yeah. We're very literal on this podcast. We're very literal. Just a, a couple it's of got, facts It's got for, two points for, for yeah. each hand. A couple of uh, facts for the audience. The UK is actually the home to 34 of the largest hedge funds in the world. The leading hedge fund in the UK, uh, Capular Investment Management, managing uh, $82.1 billion worth under assets. Uh, and the UK ranks as the second largest market for hedge fund managers in the world behind the US. So let's move on to the news of the moment, yeah. right? Well, I wonder, maybe the way into this is Quasi Quarteng's emergency statement is not the first time hedge funds have been accused of sort of being in cahoots on profiteering. Brexit night was a very I mean, we literally one. did a podcast with James O'Brien about Brexit night, didn't we? We did, we yeah. did. Listen back, it's in the old one, so it sounds shit, but the content's <laughs> excellent. Um, Who doesn't want to go back and talk about Brexit? <laughs> no one. But why are these like banner moments for hedge funders? Because I don't know if that's obvious, to be honest. Yeah, okay, so you've got lots of different types of hedge funds, some dealing sort of company stocks and shares. But what we're really thinking about when we're getting into the politics is what people would call macro hedge funds. Mm. These are funds taking big bets on sort of the direction of currencies, on the value of government debt, on basically looking at economic and political trends, trying to work out which way the markets are going to go and trying to bet on that. Now, we had that um, so-called mini budget. Went down very badly with the markets. We had initially a really big fall in the value of the pound. We had some really big moves in the value of 
British government debt. And the theory is, or the, the conspiracy is, you know, the government either did this deliberately right. to set up a trading opportunity for their hedge fund mates, or they tipped off hedge funds. They were going to do this to let hedge funds sort of get in front of those price moves. Let's consider this in, in a number of ways. So let's look at the evidence yeah. that, say, a conspiracy theorist may say, yeah. well, look at this. This yeah. clearly proves. And one of those is that for the first time in its 10 years of existence, the Office of Budget Responsibility, which is an independent body created by government to basically give a chancellor the opportunity to say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think will happen when I do it? They were not consulted before this announcement was taken. And that's the first time in its history that's happened, isn't it? They have no legal obligation to do it, but convention has seen that doing. Why is that so irregular? Yeah, I mean, look, what happened was the government just massively fucked up everything in the run-up to the budget. And that's, is, that, is that a technical, that's a technical, 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 that's technical Did that problem. come straight out of the FTs? I think I saw that. <laughs> and, like, government massively fucks up everything. That was I actually mean, they, pretty they close to the FT. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But I'm I mean, fascinated as well, just from a personal point of view, what it was like for you when you saw that. Like, what What was your immediate reaction? Right, so I thought, when we got the... So in the run-up to this budget, there was an awful lot of stuff going wrong. So the government said, we're going to do it without any forecasts, without any checking from the Office of Budget Responsibility. And that's your first alarm bell going, because that's just that that's just been part of the process for 12 years. It's the like a fuck-off make... red flag in your relationship when your yeah. ex goes fucking banging her <laughs> yeah. ex before they even... Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not a good... Yeah. It's not good for confidence, though. No, no, they, exactly. they start getting a bit jittery already. Yeah. At, oh, yeah. shit. You know, this this isn't what usually happens. Look, I mean, the thing is, the thing you've got to get your markets head Markets are like financial... an elderly auntie, right? Yeah, well, markets also, like... <laughs> you know, we, we sort of like to think of markets as these, like, you know, rational calculating machines weighing everything up. But, like, for want of a better term... The vibes really matter. And the vibes come <laughs> And the vibes this always matter. It's yeah. the vibes economy. Yeah. To be honest, we kind of are a vibes podcast. <laughs> like the new conspiracy is all about the vibes. But, but, but it's, it's true, isn't it? Like, yeah, once... the, vibe, the vibes were we are not serious people. We're not very credible. We don't care about government borrowing. We're going to run up a massive deficit. We don't care what happens to the economy. So you had no officer budget responsibility forecast. They sacked Tom Scholar. And this the, is really important. Yeah, they sacked Tom Scholar, the permanent secretary of the Treasury, like most senior financial civil servant, widely respected because they thought he would try and stop. Them. I mean, when permanent's in your job title, it's yeah, a bit exactly. weird to get abruptly yeah. sacked, isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah. Going into this budget, they'd sort of laid the groundwork that they're going to cut taxes by £30 billion. He stands up and he cuts taxes by £45 billion a year. So having prepared the markets for a really big tax cut, he then delivers one 50% bigger than that with no Office of Budget Responsibility costings, having sacked the Permanent Secretary of the Treasury. And then, then the government spends the weekend briefing friendly papers We've just got started. Here's yeah. a list of other taxes we're really going to be key. cutting. Yeah. Um, so you know, you get so on Friday, you get a big move in the value of the pound. You get a big move in the value of government debt, and then it continues into Monday and Tuesday. And I think for for a layman, what is so extraordinary to watch them just be like. <laughs> Oh, no, we're just going to make another uh, statement on the 23rd of November. Yeah. You fucking what? <laughs> yeah. That's six weeks. That's six weeks ago, you mad bastard. I mean, I think that's what the market said too. Yeah, that is absolutely fucking mental. And also, let's talk about this absolute prick who is the Chancellor right now, right? Quasi Quartang. Now, this guy, I think, is up there with the most arrogant public speakers I have ever, ever heard in my life. And, you know, another good podcast. Mm-hmm. I'm not... That Keenan and all the hosts, but Rory Stewart described him as a person he went to school with, who was the most arrogant schoolboy he had ever met who would not get into an argument. Marina Hyde recently <laughs> described him as the boy that everyone in school said was the smartest boy in class. And this guy has a master's degree, you'd think initially in economics, but it's not fucking economics. It's economic history. His PhD is very good. I it's like a really well-regarded tone. I'm giving a very fair and balanced <laughs> assessment here. But it must really hurt, mustn't it? If like, you know, you've got a PhD in economic history. You've spent sort of 12 years in Parliament trying to establish your reputation as someone that knows about the economy. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's you've qualified been to be Chancellor. Yeah, you yeah. finally get to be Chancellor. You know, this is the moment you've been waiting for. And then... This happens. Instantly, totally fuck it. But I think the moment... And, and also, like, needlessly, this budget didn't actually have to happen. No, they, no. Den- they denounced the energy yeah. package. 
And then they <laughs> sort of spent a weird week gaslighting the nation, kind yeah. of going, well, the markets were spooked by the energy package. It's like, no, they weren't. <laughs> they knew about that. Yeah. But just quickly, as the famous poet Craig Craig David said, re-e-wind, when the crowd says both selector, <laughs> after the actual budget itself, another piece of evidence that conspiracy theorists are wild for, and I find just utterly extraordinary, is he literally left having made the statement and goes and attends a private champagne reception with hedge fund managers who all stood to gain from the collapse in Sterling. And two sources told the Sunday Times, Quateng described the day as a great day for freedom. But what I also love is that then the justification from people trying to talk to, you know, the press about how the fuck is it possible that he's gone to this? Not only is it crazy PR mistake, but it just looks like insider trading. I mean, it absolutely looks Mm -hmm. like insider trading to the layman. Is that people said, oh, it's not just hedge fund managers that were there. There were property people there too. (laughs) I mean, does that say something deeply revealing about the culture? I mean, just quickly before Duncan jumps in on it, you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to think that looks fucking dodgy and also fucking stupid. Beyond. Uh, I mean, it's genuinely, it confirms the worst thing everyone thinks about every Tory. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and also about I, the system yeah. itself, right? About the nature of democracy in this country, about political capture by finance, that basically whoever pays for, you know, uh, any any parties like election campaign yeah. are the people they're going to... Sorry, I'm just yeah. going to take a step back. <laughs> just do your breathing <laughs> exercises, you know. So this is where meditation comes in. <laughs> but... Um, Remember, every trade has two sides. There will have been hedge fund managers that lost a fortune. Well, this is the, this the, is the thing. You know, I think the worst thing that's came out of the last two weeks is this. You know, we saw it after Brexit as well. You know, you get all these conspiracy theories of you know hedge funds are secretly behind this, or they knew and they were profiting off it, and you get this impression of these sort of you know almost evil geniuses, sort of, you know, stroking little white cats counting their is money. Our <laughs> but um, we can look at data. We can look on the eve of the budget. We can look at the positioning, what they were expecting, mm. data. Because people um, don't realise this stuff, you can see it. It's yeah, you can see, you can see, yeah, you can see. This yeah, you is can so see. important. People see, definitely don't understand The this. vast majority were positioned for the pound to go up and lost money right. over yeah. the last week. You know, they, were, they weren't on the right side of this trade. In fact, you know, for all of this reputation as sort of, you know, hedge funds as these you know, clever, evil geniuses, you know, they're just as likely to to lose money as to make it. In fact, performance numbers for the last few years have been pretty poor. Mm. And and it is it is this thing where did you need insider trading to sort of guess that this budget could go wrong? And I mean, I would argue no, because yeah. loads of it was actually just sort of spaffed on the front pages. <laughs> you know, most of the stuff that cost most of yeah. the money was there. Yeah. They, they fucked it more than I thought they would. Yeah. But I was looking at that stuff and going, especially, as you say, Tom Scholar, that was yeah. public information. Yeah. The OBR not doing a forecast, that was public yeah. information. Yeah. We knew they was going to waste billions yeah. and billions on corporation tax cuts. Yeah, that, but yeah. So you, you just know, need to look at her, her history. That, right? that the she, NI that, thing yeah. was there. It was so... The idea that, hey, what she was saying in the leadership campaign, you could just yeah. disregard, which I think markets had been hoping yeah. and sort of expecting, that was sort of there. If you thought, hey, they're actually going to go through with this, mm. which, if, to be honest, if you're someone like Chris Binodi, yeah. the sort of notorious, he likes baiting people. Yeah. Be honest. <laughs> he fucking loves uh, it. But you know Quateng, you know Trust, you're going to go, yeah. they're actually going to follow through with this. No one actually has to be conniving. People can just make their bets on what they know. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I think short selling's got this really dodgy reputation. Mm. And 
it's because it can seem really mean. Well, I feel yeah. like it's you're, moral. Yeah. You're asking people to fail. Like, yeah. I don't believe that, and I'll follow up if I think you answer this badly, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but what's the moral case for short selling? Look, I don't. I, look, I, I think this whole thing is amoral. It's not immoral or moral. You know, markets are expressing a view on what they think will happen about the future. But you know, think about okay, cast your mind back twenty years to sort of dot com boom when you had you know these companies like you know what's the famous one pets.com yeah. which was just a website i mean it was just a name good name but it didn't really have a business <laughs> and it was valued it was valued incredibly highly it was advertising during the super bowl but it was just pets.com i mean it was it was a clever name it was going to do something to do with pet care on the internet which was the future and you had all of these companies hugely overvalued you know people just buying the stocks or buy, buying into the hype that the internet is the future and then it crashes short sellers are useful at a time like that. They're mm. the guys sort of sitting back going, pets.com, guys, it, 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 it's just a name. Why are you valuing it at billions of dollars and placing bets that the value will fall? Markets work better when you've got people prepared to take both positions. Look at British houses. Mm. Absolutely, hugely expensive. It's almost impossible to find a way to, to short British house prices. But I think the British housing market would be better if there were financial instruments that let some people say, guys... House prices look really quite high. I think they're going to fall, and I'm going to stake can, my money on them falling. Can you imagine what the Daily Mail would say? I'll be amazing, about wouldn't it? houses. <laughs> but you know, I think you know markets work best when people can take a view on both sides. If 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 you've got a market where it's only possible to express a view that things will go up, or to sit out that market by not buying at all, I think prices are likely to to overshoot. Mm. It, it's a great answer, but sorry, because I <laughs> jokes that I'd only follow on if you uh, answer yeah. badly, I've really set myself a trap. But think about Enron. You know, yeah. you need yeah. some people yeah. to go, this is a scam, this is fucked up. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a bit of the equivalent of going, hey, take this amazing medicine, this'll be amazing, it'll grow your hair back, it'll yeah. cure cancer, it'll... If you ban short selling, you're kind of banning someone going, that guy's talking shit and this'll do nothing. It's interesting, you though, need, isn't it? You know, yeah. if people can only go long, you can only hype stuff. But it's yeah. interesting, because what you've both talked about, and I totally understand what you're saying, and, you know, it's the nature, it's, it's in the word, right, free market like yes. you know yes. it's not like up market that yeah. would be a very different yeah. thing but we've both we've been talking about companies yeah private institutions when you talk about currency it's quite interesting isn't it because really underneath it there's this kind of feeling that laymen yeah. have that they are being fucked yeah because the the bottom line comes down to well this is going to fuck our public services yeah, I mean, I think so. Okay, so like, what does a weaker pound mean? A weaker pound means that it costs us more to import stuff, which is not pleasant. Particularly weaker pound when... means great memes. <laughs> That's what it means. But you know, it, uh, particularly when energy prices are really high and we buy energy priced in dollars, and if the pound goes down, energy bills go up. You know, it's not pleasant. But in the end, you know, in sort of the medium term, and by the medium term here, I mean a week or two, the pound doesn't move. <laughs> the pound doesn't move around depending on what hedge funds are doing. The pound moves around depending on what people think is going to happen in the British the vibes. economy. The vibes. The vibes. The vibes, yeah. the vibes economy. Yeah. Got to be honest, I never thought the, the catchphrase of today would be the vibes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so I don't think... Yeah, the pound going down is painful for people at the moment because it means things is going, food and energy are going to be more expensive. No one wants that. But the pound is going down because the economic outlook is really shitty, mm. not because hedge funds are pushing it down. And I understand that people don't like the idea that while they are becoming poorer, someone is making money out of that. And it's stratospheric money, isn't it? That, I mean, that, it that feel, that oh, yeah. freaks people yeah. out. It yeah. feels like betting against Britain, though, doesn't it? Yeah. It feels yeah. like you're going, I want Britain to fail. Yeah. Do you think if you take a short position on the pound, that's what you're saying? I think you're certainly at the moment saying, look, we think the British economic outlook is grim. You're not, you're not, you're not expressing a view we want things to get worse, but you're saying, look, in my considered judgment, the outlook for the British economy is bad. Yeah. How do I make money out of that? I make money out of that by shorting the pound. But it's, it, it's, does, it does anyone... folklore, doesn't it? Because, I mean, you know, you think about Soros yeah. and Black Wednesday yeah. and you think about the moment in time that what was created yeah. there, that the, the, the infamy that led yeah. to all the conspiracy theories yeah. and James's general wage. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. George Soros apart, does pay apart, a good chunk of my salary, <laughs> usual disclaimer. But, but, apart, but apart from that, apart from that and the fact that, you know, James is deeply involved in putting microchips in people's arms with 5G, <laughs> apart from all of that. Yes, I'm also um, funded by Gates. Thank you. <laughs> 
nailed. <laughs> apart from all of that. Fuck you. <laughs> apart, apart from all of that. Um, I think the really fascinating thing is that these characters become perfect pantomime villains behind what looks like, at best, gross negligence and incompetence. How would you describe genuinely what's happened and how it's going to affect us all? Okay, I think, you know, okay, let's step back a minute. Where was the British economy? The British economy was in a bad place. It was recovering from, you know, a once in a century pandemic, which has caused all sorts of problems to supply chains. Then you get the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You get this massive spike in energy prices. And where does that leave us before Liz Truss comes to power? It leaves us with sort of a, an economy which is slowing, already heading to recession, the Bank of England reckoned. It left us with inflation about 10%, the highest it had been in 40 years. In other words, in a really bad place. And with the Bank of England putting up interest rates to try and bring down inflation. Then what happened? Okay, we got a new government. New government says... We understand the Bank of England is stepping on the brakes, trying to slow things down, trying to bring inflation down. What we're going to do is we're going to stamp on the accelerator at the same time, cut taxes, pump money into the economy, try and get growth going. I mean, that, 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 that's what happened at, at that budget. And markets looked at it and said, OK, so we've got the Bank of England stepping on the brakes. We've got the Chancellor stepping on the accelerator. We think you're going to lose control of the car. Um, and we want nothing to do with this. And they started dumping the pound. They started dumping government debt. So a big rise in interest rates and just a complete mess. Now, I think I think this was just incompetence from the government. You look at Kwasi Kwarteng and Liz Truss and the kind of people they listen to. They've spent their careers hanging around with very sort of libertarian free market think tanks who, you know, you go to these guys' fringes at a party conference, you go to their events, you know, they've spent 12 years saying that this government's not a real conservative government. It's been raising taxes. It's not really believing in free markets. What you need to get the British economy moving is to listen to us, just cut taxes, get the government out of the way. And this sort of really quite minority position has been allowed to take over policy of the British government. And what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is sort of a collision of supposedly free market ideology with a free market. <laughs> and the free market said, whoa, boys, this is a mess. Duncan, I don't drive. So can you explain <laughs> to me what happens if you put your foot on the brake and the accelerator in a car? <laughs> well, I think if you're a rally driver, that's how you do a proper hard handbrake turn. Anyone who's um, played Gran Turismo knows that. <laughs> <laughs> is it good for the engine? No, it's not. It's not good for the engine. And you need quite a bit of skill to handle it. As I I've never tried it. Um, so where to go from now? Where it goes from now is what we've actually seen which I think plays into this not being a conspiracy theory, is step by step, the Chancellor backing away from what he's done. So he's already said, OK, that cut in the top rate of income tax from 45p to 40, that's not happening. He'd originally said, you know, he did this budget with no Office of Budget Responsibility forecasts. By the Tuesday after the budget, four days later, they'd put out sort of a late notice Treasury press release saying, OK, we're going to have an Office of Budget Responsibility forecast. That's going to be on the 23rd of November. What we've seen since then, don't have a day yet, but they've now said, actually, that forecast is going to be at some point in the month of October. And so you sort of start off at this radical you know, we don't need the forecasts, we're just going to cut taxes, we think this is going to power the economy, and now they're chipping away at the um, tax changes. They've said there's going to be an OBR forecast, they're bringing that closer together, and it's slowly but surely backing away. Now, I, I, I think, I worry, the damage is done. I mean, you can't, you can't unburn the toast, and they burn the toast. And, you know, interest rates are expected to be higher than they were. The government's credibility with markets has been damaged. That makes things harder to do. So, you know, th there is lasting economic Mor damage Mortgage rates aren't going to yeah. bounce back, are No, they? exactly. People start to sort of join together, sort of cock up into conspiracy. Yeah. yeah. And I'm starting to see already there's a sense that, well, step one was screwing up the pound and, you know, screwing yeah. up guilt so that disaster capitalists yeah. could make fortune yeah. crashing it. Now they're saying that because of that, they need to bring back austerity. Yeah. And so they'll fuck over public service and do the big cuts that they wanted to do. Yeah. And then they'll say, because public services don't work, they need privatising. And so it's not, oh shit, they're scrabbling. It's here are the phases of a master plan. And can I just yeah. say this on this point? It doesn't help 
when you have Conservative MPs like David Davis writing comment pieces in The Telegraph saying, the only way to uh, deal with uh, the NHS now is an insurance-based system. Yeah. Because that, exactly yeah. like James says, it plays, it's another piece of the puzzle then, isn't it? Yeah, so. I mean, I, I think in the end, you know, I've met a lot of politicians. You know, the idea that politicians are always working to this sort of, you know, three-dimensional chess master plan that only they can see and you can piece together from the conspiracy. I mean, it's just nonsense. These are just people stumbling from crisis to crisis in most cases. You know, thinking about how do we get through this week's news cycle, at the most thinking about how do we win an election in two years' time, not thinking here's our grand plan to privatise the NHS what to was, enrich I our mean, mates. You've got to remember, there are people in the general public mm -hmm. who have adult jobs and probably parental yeah. and caring responsibilities who think Jacob Rees-Mogg is masterminding evil plans. <laughs> I know, it's nuts, isn't it? But it's because it's, it's, the, it's the amount of money involved. Yeah. And it's also, you know, it reminds me of what did, what did Marina Hyde say about Boris Johnson? That he literally is just, he's not got a big plan. He's literally thinking, how do I do up my trousers? <laughs> and that does sort of sum it up. But it also, let's let's get into these, these bits. So I have been getting pillared on... Twitter, because I said, imagine losing 65 yeah. billion and you know keeping your job. And I think the point here was that, and this is where we come back to your, your specific experience with the Bank of England, because the Bank of England had to trigger a process by which they were saying, not immediately, not in one go, but they were going to spend 65 billion on guilts. Yeah. Now, these are not like kilts. So are you saying that the Bank yeah. of England is engaging in some guilty pleasures? Some <laughs> guilty kilt pleasures. So what, first of all, what are guilts for, yeah. for, for the layman? And also, what the fuck is going on? Okay, so a guilt is just what we call a British government bond. So when right. the British government wants to raise money, it puts it into a, a form of local bond. Why do we have bond. to call it, call it that well, instead this of debt? This is the thing. We do, it, we've always just called them guilts. An American friend says, you know, the greatest trick the Brits ever played was convincing us we should call their government debt guilts. That's, that's what people would use to pay for for things in Westeros. Also, it's it's in, not a real it's not a real word. It's really but, interesting because this idea uh, of like the Fed and the Bank of England, yeah. when you watch any conspiracy theory, I mean the biggest is Zeitgeist, right? And then it starts with like modern money mechanics yeah. and it starts saying like what you don't understand is that essentially when America became independent, the Fed became independent yeah. and the British started controlling the money supply, which is kind of true as well. Like after the Second World War, mm -hmm. there was definitely a policy shift to say, you know, what, we don't have global strategic dominance militarily, so yeah. we're going to make sure we know. How would you answer that to people. Like, why are these bodies independent? Why can they do what they do? Yeah. The argument for having an independent central bank is that, you know, like we've got off the Bank of England, have had since 1997 independence. I mean, basically the argument comes down to politicians can't be trusted to manage the economy. That, politicians, that seems a good argument. Yeah, I mean, the politicians, that politicians will always... fucking stood up, doesn't it? <laughs> that politicians will always have an incentive to cut taxes before an election or spend more on their favoured voters. They won't be looking at sort of where the economy is in the medium term. They'll be over-focused on the next election. Because of that, they will sometimes, you know, spend too much or cut taxes too much and push up inflation too high, which is painful in the long run. By having an independent central bank, which is steering the economy by raising and lowering interest rates, governed by technocrats who don't have to be re-elected, they can focus on the medium term. That's That's been the so, traditional So argument. the publicly owned Bank of England is spending £65 billion to buy up the government's public debt. Why? Well, okay. So well, this is the bit where we're going to get slightly tech. I'm going to do as straightforwardly as I can. This right. is the science bit. This is the like science bit. Like in the Pantene adverts. <laughs> so, Laurie, was it L'Oreal? No, it was Pantene. I think right. it was Pantene. Yeah. Oh, he did yeah. a hair flick. Yeah, yeah. Hair flick. yes. Duncan has fantastic hair. So, you know, it's the <laughs> sort does. of thing he could do. Go on, do here comes the All science right. part. Here comes the science part then. Okay. So what we get is on the budget. We get the budget. And the government is going to cut taxes by £45 billion. That's putting more money into the economy. So the markets think, OK, the government's putting more money into the economy, so there's going to be more spending, so inflation is going to be higher. So the Bank of England, to get inflation down, now has to increase interest rates by even more. That's step one and two. Because interest rates are going up, British government debt becomes a bit less attractive to hold. Like, if why would you buy a British government bond with an interest rate of, say, 3% today if you think interest rates are going to go up to 3.5% in a few mm. months' time? You just wait. So you think, OK, it's less attractive. So the price 
of British government debt starts to fall because the Bank of England is going to put up interest rates because of what the government's doing. So it that's, all happens before the yeah. actual interest so that, rate goes yeah. up because yeah. everyone gets everyone, it. Everyone so that's the key it. point. Yeah, right? Everyone's expecting this time. Yeah. You're playing on expectations. So that's what happens on Friday after the budget. It's what happens on Monday. On Tuesday, the gilt market starts to break because you've got so much selling. Now, what turns out what's happened is lots of really, really big pension funds Defined benefit pension funds, these old legacies, like you know, paying for, yeah, all of these massive pension funds paying proper old-fashioned final salary pensions. They buy an awful lot of British government debt because it's safe and it lasts a long time. And that's what you want if you're running a pension fund for 50 years. Mm. You want like a 30-year government bond, which you're not going to, you know, it's, it's, it's safe. It's going to pay you steady interest. Now, it turns out, and this is not the government's fault. This is the first thing I've said today is not the government's <laughs> fault. It turns out that a lot of these pension funds have themselves been using really quite complicated financial derivatives to buy even more gilts using debt, using borrowing to buy gilts. And when the price of gilts starts to fall, their counterparties, the people they've done these trades with, say to them, right, this stuff that you've borrowed money to buy is falling in price. And it's falling in price at a rate we've not seen in decades. That's because the budget was so hated by markets. You need to give us some money now because this stuff you've borrowed money to buy is falling in price. You need to pay out. You need to pay out. You pay us, pay us now. It's called a margin call in finance. It's not and it's basically because the person that lent you the money to do it is, is going, worried you're going to... God, if this falls by more, fall. yeah. I'm going to get wiped out. Yeah. Now, the problem is, all of these pension funds, the main thing they hold, which they can sell quickly, is gilt. So the price of gilt is falling. That means they get a margin call, give us some cash. So they have to go, okay, okay, we'll sell some gilts and give you that money. But the more they sell gilts the more the price of gilts falls. So by by sort of Tuesday, Wednesday, we just have madness in the gilt market. You see, like the interest rate on a 30-year government bond moves from under 3% on Friday to over 5% by lunchtime Fucking on Wednesday. Like now, that, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Let's be absolutely clear. Now, we can get month-by-month -month data back to the 1950s. We have never seen a month-by-month -month move and this, in the gilt market like that. And this causes problems. So the Bank of this England... This isn't vibes. This is like an actual death yeah, spiral, yeah, 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 you're, isn't you're it? This is, there's a real structural yeah. So the problem. Bank of England, is, it seems the Bank of England's governor is getting phone calls all day from different people, not hedge funds, from big pension funds, yeah. from big asset managers saying, yeah. guys, the gilt market is broken. It is broken. And this is going to seriously... It, it risks putting Britain into a financial crisis. So the Bank of England has to sort of step into the market and it says it will buy up to £65 billion of gilts over the course of two weeks. So what the bank's doing is it's stepping in saying there is a fire sale developing here. We will step in as the buyer of last resort, put a floor on those prices and prevent. Now, since then, the bank hasn't actually had to buy very much. It said it would buy up to £5 billion a day. It's actually just buying um, a few hundred million mm. most days because now that the market can see there is a buyer of last resort prepared mm. to put a floor on this, that price, you don't need to get to the floor. Now, we should be absolutely clear as well, the Bank of England, isn't, even if it does £65 billion, it's not just setting fire to £65 billion. It will end up owning £65 billion of government debt. It's a mess. It is absolutely extraordinary that the bank has had to intervene to clean up a mess caused by the government. I can't remember that happening. It's never happened. No, I, 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 the bank is... Isn't yeah, the there an argument it happened that there was a time uh, around Iraq where there was a similar thing? Not a very the, um, yeah, a minute I, level. Yeah. This is, I think... Almost without dispute, this is the biggest self-inflicted economic harm yeah. a government's really ever done. Yeah. And we've had fucking Brexit. <laughs> <laughs>producer Michael has done us a quiz. Oh, fuck off. Oh, tremendous. Because is this he another quiz I don't fucking know about? Because he knows how much Jesus Jolien loves surprise Christ, quizzes. Jesus Hang on. Is this an economics quiz where I'm going up against <laughs> someone from the fucking Bank of England? Yes. <laughs> oh, good. It's that time again, folks. Don't fucking... All my producers are fucking laughing at me. You can fuck off. <laughs> I, I, You're cool. Executive producer Alex has arrived just to see the Unbelievable. quiz. Unbelievable. Come on, then. It's that time again, folks, where I pit your knowledge off Investment funds typically formed as a private limited partnership that engage in speculation using credit or borrowed capital against your knowledge of fences or boundaries formed by closely glowing bushes or shrubs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. It's hedge fund or hedge. I'm going to say something that's oh either God, the name I of a hedge it. fund yeah. or the name of a hedge. Amazing. Isn't that 
fun. Do you know what, guys? It's weird because I know so much about edges. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fucking so into edges. Uh, the I've here again. Producer Michael has made the hedges sound a bit like hedge funds by adding words like capital, group, or partners to create some sort of jeopardy to the game. We'll take it in turns. Duncan, as the guest, you can go first. Thank you. Duncan, Prunus Partners. <laughs> That's a hedge, not a hedge fund. It is a hedge. <laughs> boom, boom. Prunus Lusitania was also known as Portugal Laurel. It's a species of plant native to southwestern France, Portugal, Morocco, and the Canaries. I can't believe how fucking good I think this is. <laughs> so, Joel. Yes. Nephilia Capital. I'm going to go as the National Hedge Fund. It's an actual hedge Fuck fund. Yeah, let's get in there. It ranks as the 41st biggest hedge fund in 2021, which is particularly active in insurance-linked securities, the ILS market. Duncan. What the fuck did that just mean? <laughs> Insurance-linked what? Is that like some don't, fucking don't, don't worry thing about in it, Zelda darling. or something? <laughs> what? Oh, God. Duncan. Lone Pine Capital. Hello. That's another hedge. It's a hedge fund. Oh, oh, shit. Logan Roy, suck my dick. It's uh, founded by Stephen Mandel, who was one of American billionaire hedge fund managers Julian Robertson's Tiger Cups. The fund holds $36 billion of assets under management, more than the GDP of Bahrain. Robertson himself has a net worth of $3.6 billion, according to Forbes. Holy it, shit. It's the size of the economy of Bahrain now, our, our yardstick. Like, yeah. Like the size <laughs> yeah. of Wales. I mean, we all, we all know the size of the economy of Bahrain, don't we? That's, uh, first thing I check when I wake up in the morning. Okay, Vibes in jo- Bahrain. Bahrain vibes. Uh, Jolien, for, yes. for the win. For the win. For the win. Grizzlina Group. I think it's a hedge fund. It's a hedge. Oh, bollocks, bollocks. Grizzlina is a dense evergreen hedge plant with soft, glossy apple green leaves. Oh, isn't that poetic? Which make the perfect windbreaks, according to Hedges Direct. I thought it sounded quite macho, like gri- Grizzlina. Wait, Hedges Direct. What's Hedges Direct? <laughs> Never it's, a mind. Brand, it's a brand new website, like, so, like pets.com. You're on, you're on one point each. Oh, the is there a tiebreaker? There is a tiebreaker. And the question so, is, is Quasi Quartang a cunt? Whoever, <laughs> the is yes. whoever sh- shouts out the correct answer first is the winner. <laughs> oh, shit. So if you shout out the wrong answer, you're out. Tiebreak. Titch and Marsh Associates. Hedge. Yes! <laughs> Uh, so don't worry, that's just me being very rude. And the explanation for that one is Alan Titchmarsh, a great lover of hedges. <laughs> Thanks for playing Hedge Fund or Hedge Fun. Producer. We'll be back next week. Oh my God. Hedge Fund or Hedge Fun. Producer Michael, everyone, let's have a round of applause because we've suddenly become Steve Wright in the afternoon. Amazing. I, I really do quite enjoy it when I get that it. That was get brilliant. It. So, so Duncan got left sort of up in the reception room on his own. Uh, as I sort Is this of, what you were doing? Yeah, as I arrived today. Unbelievable. He was like, oh, you've got to go and do something, you know, official without, you know, before I can yeah. come in. I can reveal that that was what I was getting briefed on while Jolien was distracted. It's amazing. Right, now listen, that was fun. Let's talk about something really fucking depressing. Yeah. <laughs> Um, when we the are vibes talking, of this podcast very weird. Now, the borrowing thing, again, people do not understand. So Britain, historically, especially in the last 30 years, we have had a AAA rating. What does that mean? Right. So there's these organisations called credit ratings agencies. There's like some Moody's. big ones like Moody's, like Standard & Poor's, these big organisations. And they, anyone that's borrowing, a government or a company, they sort of look at them, say, how safe are they to lend to? Mm. Give them a rating, you know, double A or triple A. And triple A is the best. Triple A is the best, yeah. And we have had that, which means we can borrow at a low rate. Yeah. And now we're at double A negative. Yes, we have absolutely monumentally fucked ourselves here, haven't we? I mean, I mean it's, it's still a high rate. In the end, right, it matters because it matters because some people pay attention to it. I try not to pay too much attention 
to what credit rating agencies say because they they've got some things horribly wrong in the past. I mean, they, these are the they same people. Have a great 2008, now these they? are the people that said all of these dodgy products backed by American subprime mortgages were rated triple A. They've got again. things wrong in the past. Um, so you know, I don't think we should. You know, they're not again. We shouldn't sort of you know rank them as these you know amazing um, amazing geniuses who are always wrong. I think it sometimes helps to remember that you know Standard and Poor's or Moody's or whatever will have a lead UK analyst. Let's call him Steve. Steve. And it sort of helps like to Steve. think that, you know, rather than saying Standard & Poor's has downgraded the UK, to say Steve has downgraded his view the on the UK. So, um, so you know, I, I, I try and, you know, it matters because the government in 2010 said that losing our credit rating would be a disaster. This was one of the justifications for the first round of austerity was protecting, you know. So it, I think why it matters is 12 years on from all of that, if this was your target, you've missed yourself. You've missed, I mean, I, that spot. is genuinely helpful because so a, a name yeah. you hear a lot in this world is Pantheon uh, Macroeconomics, yeah. and their chief economist. You I went to fucking U- I went to uni with. <laughs> it's this thing of it, uh, he's very good. I'm yeah. sure it's not yeah. that, but it is this thing of oh, it's it's yeah. Sam. Yeah. <laughs> in what yeah. fucking world? Do you commonly hear pantheon fucking wank economic <laughs> shit? In economics world, darling. Oh, um, like you Duncan immediately recognised the name. But, you two need to fucking get but out. Just or. just before before we wrap, someone sort of gave me quite a good summary or I read mm. recently. They sort of said we we've just had a decade of basically free money if you're a government. And we spent it doing austerity cuts and oh, underinvesting yeah. in infrastructure. We've now coming to an era of quite expensive money, certainly for what we're used to, yeah. and we've got a government that's claiming it was willing to blow up borrowing and sort of do these reforms, and it's exactly the opposite way around to what any sane economist would do, and they don't have a route out of it. That's fair. It's fair. We look. We had ten years of the lowest interest rates ever. And the government didn't react by saying now is a good time to borrow. It reacted by saying, oh, got to cut public spending, got to bring the deficit down. We've now got interest rates rising to more normal levels. And they say, oh, seems a perfectly sensible time to borrow. What should we use the money for? Fucking Cutting taxes for the rich. Why not? Well, Why listen, so? we've come to that part of the podcast where we have to decide whether this conspiracy theory that the Tory government crashed the economy in order to benefit hedge funds is a real conspiracy or a fugazi, it's nonsense. So... Duncan. I think it was incompetence. The theory is nonsense. James. Uh, I mean, whoever coined trust a fuck, I think they uh, <laughs> were onto something. That is Total nice. trust a fuck. <laughs> Duncan, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, revealing the secrets of your capitalist overlords. If people want to follow you on the internet or see what you're doing, where can they find you? They can find me at Duncan Weldon on Twitter or they can find the value added newsletter at Substack. And I hope that you found this episode helpful to play to your racist nan, your insane best friend who's smoking way too much skunk on come downs and who thinks everything is a conspiracy theory and you mate who just never listened to the podcast because we need your help to make this podcast explode make this podcast great again <laughs> make this podcast great so, again and if you really enjoyed it once you've given us that five star review that you've been meaning to get round to you can join our secret inner club of listeners, the Tier 4 Platinum Circle. Not only do you get to listen to this episode and and future episodes totally ad-free, you also get our bonus episodes. We've got about 15 of these already and a new one every week. And I can tell you, this week's one is a banger because you can find out what I've been doing with Roger Waters. Our producer was Michael Dale. Our engineers, Jay Beale, Josh Gibbs, Gully Lawrence Tickle and Teddy Riley. Production coordinator was Lily Hambly. Our marketing coordinator, Emily Webb. And our executive producer, Alex Lawless. With additional production from Chris Skinner. We'll be back next week. Thank you very much. 